shouldn't be really any law that describes locational prejudice as being bad. In fact, um, a lot of public figures and people we know who probably wouldn't say the same thing about race or gender, for example, um, feel okay making fun of people of where they're from. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Appalachia Meets World, we are back. It's Will and Neil. Neil, how's it going, man? How hey, is man. it going? It is going down here in the 606, man. 606, that's it's where you're from. I did some advertisement stuff for the old Appalachia Meets World today. Really? I uh, got some sponsors wanting to get some reads. I mean, things are looking up. Nice, nice. You yeah. didn't. You haven't shared. Anything else going on? Just living the dream down here. Came home for lunch, quick lunch today. Had a rooster and a hen in my garage. So, uh, you know, chickens are on the prowl. <laughs> but, you know, it's like you can't get... Not, you can't not get, an episode goes by that you, you don't want to see some chicken. You can't get too mad at chickens, though, because as my 11-year-old informed me, they are the dumbest animal known to man. And they give you food. They give me and every day they give me five eggs a day. I mean, they're popping them things out like cotton candy, baby. You have your rankings this week? No, I don't have those yet for you, man. We'll we'll, we'll have to get those on Sunday. I have to, uh, I gotta, I gotta see how things play out. It's a little too early. So, what's up in your neck of the woods? I want to say a lot. It was, it was like 80 degrees here this past weekend, which is not common. For this part of the country uh, in October, I'm usually crossing my fingers that it doesn't snow in October. Unusually hot in the fall. It's been hot here as well, but you know we're kind of used to hot, hotter days in the fall. It, it has been beautiful. It continues to be beautiful down here. So yeah, I'm not complaining. And speaking of the fall, you're gonna give me a hint on your uh, Halloween costume. Man, come on, man. You're always asking for inside information. Can't you just learn like everybody else? You always want to get a leg up. I feel like I, I should have some in, inside information here. I mean, why? Because you're my brother? Because you're my co-host. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your co-host. I like Forget it. about this blood I like stuff. It. I like it. <laughs> uh, when the time is right, when the time is right, you will be informed. What about you, Mr. Questions? Well, I was going to tell you tonight, but now I'm not. You'll find out like everybody else, I guess. Well, you're going to be a pirate for the fourth year in a row? Pirate? (laughs) I'm usually a horse. You can't be Freddy Krueger. That's my go-to. You can't be Freddy Krueger. Scare your kids. Speaking Uh, of Freddy Krueger, tell all the listeners, go ahead. I'm a lot younger than you, and you made me watch Freddy Krueger when I was like seven years old. I don't feel like I made you. I still have nightmares about (laughs) Freddy Krueger. That's your your issue. No, it's your issue. You, I I did not make you. You forced me. I was watching it, and you You watched it. You forced me to watch it. (laughs) I was seven. You gave me popcorn and candy and said, watch this. <laughs> and and then told me to go to sleep. Like, okay. And yeah. see how memorable it was? Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll go right to sleep. And you still remember it. See how that's quality entertainment right there. Yeah, it's, I've been in uh, counseling for years over it. Speaking of 
Chucky and uh, <laughs> yeah, how about that? We didn't I'm mention glad, Chucky, did we? But I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, did you? I, I guess you heard all about John Gruden, huh? Oh uh, yeah. If you're uh, anywhere in the world, I guess. I mean, I guess some non-football fans might not have heard it. But, What'd you uh, think about that? Man, I'm a little torn over it. Honestly. How could you be torn? Because, like, I mean, we live in such a weird society now. Was it right? No, but you and I have both done things in the past that aren't right, right? Cat got your tongue, mister? No, I didn't have my tongue. He had, he, had to, he had to go. I don't know any of the background, but I know that there was a lot of slander, a lot of discrimination, a lot of things that he shouldn't have said, definitely shouldn't have said. Pretty repulsive, some of the things that he said. I, I don't feel like he needs to be head coach in the NFL when the NFL talks about inclusion and rights for all. How can you have a coach that is at least in his own words via email basically opposing that yeah i mean i i i get i get it i get where you're coming from but one 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 of the points that i heard uh somebody on espn make in the last couple days is has there ever been a more privileged dude he retires from the nfl so he retires and then he lands the most prestigious broadcasting job the Monday football guy yep, and does a fantastic job for the most part. You know, he goes straight from retirement into that job and then goes into arguably one of the best NFL jobs. Like, no, he's the highest, highest paid NFL coach at the time when he got hired. And then not only does he go in as a coach, but they give him complete control. He can do whatever he wants, gets rid of people, moves people around, shuffles people. He's in charge. And then to – Where that get him? Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. But to – and then to, you know, make some of the stakes that the NFL's fought so hard against. That's that's the problem. Yeah, that – But 100%. One, one question I had about that, though, is if they would have gone through his emails and if he had been saying the exact same thing – However, using the term hillbilly and just talking about hillbillies or people from Appalachia with the same type of slander, would they even have cared? Which it, it was horrid what he did, especially talking about race or talking about gender, talking about sexual orientation. But had he talked the same about hillbillies or Appalachians, would, he, would we be in the same position now? I kind of doubt it. And promise you it wouldn't have got the headlines and as a matter of fact i bet you in his coaching career he's made remarks to a appalachian kid who might sound different or who might have grown up different or whose parents might not have been in the same circles as as he and his family because of where they're from exactly and the only point we're trying to make here is that it's not right what he did and it's not right to talk about hillbillies, to talk about Appalachians that way as well. Unless you is one. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> and then you still got to be careful. But <laughs> you get my point. I mean, have you ever felt like you've been discriminated against in regards to how you talk, uh, where you're from? I would say definitely judged. Judge, yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. Discrimination is hard Especially yeah. legally, I guess it's hard to prove. Obviously, we're not experts, but <laughs> judged is a good word. 
Yeah, you know, I spoke to it in the past, you know, in athletics, it, it was really where I caught the most of it, which is kind of a an area where, you know, there's some locker room banner anyway, and, you know, things can kind of go either way. But back in my college days, it was obvious to everybody that I didn't sound like the rest of the team. And I wasn't from the same place as most of the other players. And early, especially early in my college career, that was a big deal to everybody except me. And I definitely felt that I was judged or categorized as being less than uh, because of where I was from. You know, that that for me, that fueled, fueled me. Uh, it made me want to achieve more just because of that. And it ended up working out, you know, certain things happen and guys realize that, oh, well, maybe, maybe this kid's okay, but you still had to go through that process. And a lot of people don't have to go through that process because they don't sound like me or they're not from where I'm from. So yeah, definitely for sure. Yeah, I totally get that. I I, I was working for this individual. I was in a group setting. It, it was at, at work. I mean, they didn't know where I was from. They obviously knew I had an accent. But they were talking about having a phone conversation and that people from Appalachia part of the state would always call them and ask, ask them questions. And they were basically saying to me and to the rest of the group, they don't know why they were calling that these people were so slow and backwards and they couldn't get anything done. So they had to call the big city and, and, and basically just making fun of them right there. When, when it's your boss saying these things, it, it it's not a place where you can speak up, especially considering they weren't saying it to me, but obviously they were judging people right in front of me, people, my people, people where I'm from. And I've, I've had that on a number of occasions. I've had coworkers say straight to my face that they had family from where I'm from. That family is so backwards and so ignorant. It's just commonplace, I think. And people, <clears throat> can talk about hillbillies and it be politically correct, or at least it'd be okay. You know what I mean? It's yeah, kind of frustrating. I, and it, 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 Discrimination is a hard word because are we discriminated against? I don't know. Are we judged? Definitely. Definitely judged. Definitely judged. I can remember early in my first professional working career of being at a meeting in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, basically everybody in the room stopping just to listen to me talk. And, you know, you kind of laugh it off at the time and do whatever they ask you to do. But as I look back on it, they weren't asking me to talk because they like me. <laughs> they, they wanted to hear me talk and, and, you know, role play, if you will, just so they could make fun of me. And, right. You know, they were definitely judging me. You know, I, I think that's a perfect segue into um, our guest tonight on the show. We are having a special guest tonight. Do you want to tell our, our audience a little bit about who's going to join us? Yeah, uh, Professor William Ree. He's a lawyer and law professor at West Virginia University. He also has some expertise in civil rights, and he wrote an essay uh, in the law journal there at, at West Virginia. It was titled Geographic Discri Discrimination of Place, Space, Hillbillies, and Home. And it's kind of exactly kind of what we're talking about here in regards to geographic discrimination and being discriminated against just because of where you're from or where you grew up, um, which is not right. 
being being discriminated against in regards to sexual orientation, in regards to gender, in regards to race is not right. Being dis discriminated against because of where you're from is also not right. Uh, and that's kind of what his essay points out. There's a lot more to it. And, and that's something that we'll talk to him about, I'm sure. Well, let's ask him, my man. All right, I, I need to hear it from the horse's mouth. All right, let's get him on here. tonight, Professor Will Reed, who is a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. He's also a member of the West Virginia Law Institute. He was previously a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice under the Civil Rights Division, as well as an associate in a law firm in Washington, D.C. I want to mention he also was a past company commander in the Army National Guard, and in 2019 and 2020, he was awarded Professor of the Year at West Virginia University. Yeah, every dog has their day one day, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, Professor Ree, or can we call you Will? Will, please. I appreciate it. Will, thank you so much for being on the episode. We, pre we appreciate your time and feel honored that you would take the time. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. And I think, um, you know, what you all are doing is really, really invaluable. Um, it's really important that uh, Appalachia's story comes from the people actually living it. You know, I think a lot of the problems that we're going to talk about have to do with people from the outside superimposing their own sort of narratives, you know, the oversimplified narratives. Yeah, and to that point, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the episode, we came across your essay that you wrote, Geographic Discrimination of Place, Space, Hillbillies, and Home. I am not an expert in these issues. I, I do teach at the only law school at West Virginia, and about half of my students are West Virginians who are, of course, all Appalachians. But, you know, a lot of this is just that, like, I myself educated myself with these two articles. Uh, the students were the ones who created this symposium about Appalachian justice, and they sort of invited me to write something on it. So I'm probably going to talk more from my own personal experience. But, like, unlike a lot of the people you've had on here, I'm really not an expert in this area. But, you know, I'm, I'm learning and I'm always, always wanting to learn more. We consider you an expert, and we also consider you an Appalachian. One, one thing we wanted to ask you, uh, the question we ask all our guests, just to kick it off, Neil and I, our families, like, like all Appalachians, are big on tradition. Our family's big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have are appetizers at the holidays. We, we usually have more appetizers than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or holiday dish? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. And this kind of shows my different perspective. So, you know, I, I'm, uh, my parents are, were immigrants from South Korea. We didn't really celebrate Christmas. We kind of had the stereotypical Jewish Christmas, right? Where they were like, um, we'd watch a movie on Christmas Eve. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I am a, I am a Christian now and I do celebrate Christmas. Or even Thanksgiving hall, any hall. I mean, you know, I guess, I guess if I were thinking of appetizers, I mean, just, when I think of my own uh, formative times growing up, I guess it would be like Chinese food because that was like the only thing that was open. <laughs> you know, it's almost like, you know, <laughs> the stuff that I've heard in some of your episodes, I mean, those are great. I mean, I love those, but I, I gotta be, you know, like probably uh, just because that's, that's what I grew up with, right? It was the only thing open on Christmas Eve. So like- oh, that's perfect, perfect. Maybe perfect. those like, uh, those weird pork things that look like, nuclear you know they're like glowing they have that like really red glow barbecue maybe that weird like barbecue appetizers or those like crab rangoon things that have like you know 
uh, cream cheese. And I'm like, yeah. I, love, I love me some crab ragoon. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I, I love the answer. And I, I always love it when we get a first. And that was, that was crab ragoon is definitely a first. <laughs> Let's just get right into it. Can you, can you just explain to our listeners what, you know, what you mean by geographic discrimination, Ron? Sure. Okay. So, um, Geographic discrimination, it's its sort of a two-edged sword because on the one hand, it's unavoidable, right? Like where we choose to live and work and go to school, there are, there are consequences that come to that. I mean, one big one for Appalachians, of course, is jobs, right? And sometimes you have to go where the jobs are, not where you want to be. And um, I know a lot of West Virginians who struggle with this. They want to stay home, but there's just not opportunity and there's not jobs. They have to go elsewhere. But then there's the flip side also that's more um, sinister, and I call it locational prejudice, which is basically where you experience discrimination on the basis of where you're from or where you live. Absent one very uh, one one Cincinnati city ordinance, there doesn't seem to be really any law that prescribes locational prejudice as being bad. In fact. Um, a lot of public figures and people we know who probably wouldn't say the same thing about race or gender, for example, um, feel okay making fun of people uh, where they're from. And in particular, you know, Appalachians tend to experience locational prejudice uh, based on, you know, the hillbilly epithet, among others. Yeah, I've always just been pretty comfortable being a hillbilly. But I've often in, in my life, several times, as I mentioned to you earlier, have gotten the uh, the answer from people or the reaction from people when I tell them where I'm from, it just kind of, oh, kind of roll your eyes, you're from there, or oh, you're you're not gonna be able to do this because you're you're from you're from the mountains. So it's just been odd to me over time how it's just been culturally accepted, I guess, which is kind of what we're fighting against through this podcast or oftentimes from this podcast. We, we've mentioned it several times. So I, I find it very interesting to know how accepted it is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I agree that um, I mean, oftentimes uh, historically marginalized populations will often embrace sort of like what was considered a negative label and try to make it positive. I mean, so like the pink triangle with LGBTQIA people is a, is a prime example, right? And I do think that there are people who are quite comfortable with being called a hillbilly or, or maybe even like a redneck. Uh, but my, my problem with that, of course, is that like, if, if someone aspires to a profession or an identity that maybe doesn't mesh as well as with the stereotype, well then that stereotype can be really, really harmful, right? Uh, uh, there was a New York Times article um, I mentioned in one of my, um, one of my articles that uh, interviewed a, um, someone in Cincinnati. She was a lawyer and she was a partner and she said that when, and she was from Appalachia and she had accent, right? She had an accent. And she was told uh, when she was interviewing for the job that, hey, don't tell anyone that you're from Appalachia. And I think fundamentally, you know, it's all about you treat people as you meet them as individuals. And like, why does someone's particular accent or maybe the fact that they, you know, they came from a particular place have any bearing on their abilities to do something totally unrelated to that? And you mentioned in your essay, if that same perspective were to be brought in with, say, race or gender, of how different the conversation would be in regards to geographic bias or locational prejudice. And can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So um, again, geographic discrimination is complicated because to do anything as a human being, you have to have, as, as you all 
sort of coincidentally, I've also talked about you need you need like a space and a place. The concept of home is, of course, really, really important too. And when you make choices, I mean, I mean, there are constant, there are natural consequences of those choices. Like if I choose to live in Morgantown, West Virginia, versus um, where I used to live, say outside of Washington, D.C. Well, yes, there are going to be some things that are not available to me in Morgantown, West Virginia, that were available to me in Washington, D.C. I also got rid of my like, you know, hour and a half one-way commute. I have a five-hour commute now, you know, the cost of living, you know, I was able to buy a house for like half of what I had to pay for, let's say in the area. So, so those, there are natural consequences, right? So the problem is that locational prejudice, what I call, which is where like, basically people are treating where you're from or where you live as, as a category to discriminate you with similar to, you know, race or gender. Now, now the one caveat I would add, of course, is that there's there's a history for both, but like legally, the way that at least U.S. law works is that there are protected classes, right? And so like race, for example, is a protected class because of the longstanding history of government-sponsored um, discrimination on the basis of race. And so there are particular protections for that. Ironically, though, the Appalachian Regional Commission, you know, something I, when I went back and looked at sort of the original documents in the 60s, and even the statute that formed it, there's this, there are these amazing admissions by the federal government and by lots of states basically saying, yeah, in the past, you know, we discriminated against Appalachians. Basically, we took advantage of them and we took their natural resources and we took their wealth and we took it outside of, of, of where they live. And so there, there has been sort of these official sort of confessions that there was in the past a historical uh, government-sponsored uh, discrimination, but yet there's no sort of legal remedy for that. You mentioned in your essay that there have been two reported opinions in regards to Appalachian discrimination. In 1982 and 1994, the Southern District of Ohio, both had cases, did not form into law, I guess is the correct <laughs> way to say it. But also um, the, the, the city of Cincinnati, despite those two uh, district court cases that were rejected, the city of C Cincinnati, like you mentioned earlier, has passed the only human rights or ordinance in the U.S. in regards to prescribing Appalachian discrimination and putting it into law. Can you talk about the significance of that and why Cincinnati? I, I know um, you talk about three definitions of Appalachians in your essay, one being native Appalachians, one being resident Appalachians, and the other being urban Appalachians, which I think you identify at least 10% of the Cincinnati population is urban Appalachians. So can you talk about that law, why it was passed, if it's still a law, and why it hasn't been looked at anywhere else in the country, or, or, or just your opinion, I guess? Sure, sure. So um, all these sorts of uh, civil rights laws one of the hardest problems is, is line drawing, right? Like, I mean, even when you talk about race, for example, you self-identify as race, right? Like, I mean, the U.S., uh, which until like 2000 didn't even have multiracial categories. Basically, there are these oversimplified boxes that you got to check and you got to say, well, are you one or the other? You know, And there's not a clear definition about what that is. Same thing I'd say with Appalachian. So like, you know, I try to define a native Appalachian versus a resident Appalachian and a so-called urban Appalachian. A native Appalachian is someone who uh, is born in, in Appalachian, right? Actually came from a county, which I, I guess I would, I would identify as um, defined by the Appalachian Regional Commission as being part of Appalachia. 
you know, as a side note, I'll say even that definition is somewhat problematic, right? Because it was made in the 60s. There are like a couple of counties outside of Atlanta, Georgia, that may technically be defined as Appalachian, but like, you know, they've had, I mean, I mean, they've had like some ridiculous amount of growth so that someone might say, well, you know, if Appalachian means poor or impoverished, I, I don't consider those places to be the same, right? So there's a lot of this sort of, okay, so what is it like? Let's see here. Uh, Barrow, Cherokee, Dawson, Forsyth, Gwinnett, and Paulding counties, they experienced over 250% population growth. That's five times more than the national average from 1980 to 2016. And, you know, I, I actually haven't been there. I think I've been to Gwinnett, but um, I'm sure that maybe a lot of that doesn't make, or, or take, for example, Allegheny County in, in, in Pennsylvania, which is Pittsburgh, right? Yes. It's called the Paris of Appalachia. I mean, right. like, a lot of people wouldn't consider Pittsburgh necessarily. Well, that's not the stereotype of Appalachia. And then there are resident Appalachians. So someone like me, where, you know, I was not born an Appalachian, but like I've moved here and, uh, you know, I've lived here for 13 years and I, I, I don't plan on leaving. I mean, I really like it here. And, you know, I consider myself to be an Appalachian too. Um, maybe not the same as someone who was like sort of brought up here in their formative childhood years. And then there's the big problem of just jobs, right? And uh, there was that period, I think it's often called the Great Migration, uh, when from like the 40s, like the 30s or 40s to like the 60s or so, Appalachians were forced to leave their home because they had to get job. And, and you know, it almost reminds me of, so for example, like a lot of Filipinos in the United States, you know, there's this overseas Filipino workers where like, they're forced to go overseas to get jobs. I think some huge part of the GMP of the Philippines is uh, based on these OFWs, overseas Filipino workers. And, I, and there's some in Morgantown I'm friends with. And like they send money home and, you know, they make the best out of living where they are, but they would prefer to be back home, right? Where they're, where they are, where they're from, but they can't because there's just not opportunity. And so my understanding is that one of the reasons why, so like the, the federal district court cases that you mentioned, and also the human rights ordinance, you know, all tend to come from that area of Ohio. I think it's because it, it was an area where a lot of Appalachians from all over the country migrated for jobs. It, it might have one of the most, one of the largest, uh, what I call urban Appalachian populations, right? People who originally were from other places in Appalachia who moved to like the Cincinnati area for employment. And um, it seems to be one of the more well-organized. I mean, they have a lot of actual dedicated Appalachian uh, organizations and resources. And so, so, so one of the more challenging things about locational prejudice, if we use look at the Appalachian context is I think usually the type of harmful prejudice is going to be where someone from Appalachia who self-identifies as Appalachian is forced to go outside of Appalachia for work and then is sort of labeled that way and is sort of discriminated against. Because I think that's probably the most common context, right? I mean, presumably if, if you're if you're from Appalachia and you're in Appalachia, I don't know if, I mean, I would be surprised if you experienced a lot of discrimination for being Appalachian. But I know you talked about the three things that can be sabotaged, home, job, and school. Yes. Vocational prejudice. Well, I, I think something, you know, we were talking about home earlier. There's something strange about, I think it's just human nature that you take for granted what's around you. Oftentimes you don't appreciate home until you leave home. And then, you know, you miss home or you're homesick. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, it might take people who are forced economically to leave Appalachia to really appreciate who they are and maybe um, become even more Appalachian, right? Which of course, if you're looking at it, 
through a legal lens, which I think is a, is a hard way to look at this, though, uh, it makes it even more complicated, right? I mean, I mean, the thing about geographic discrimination above all is that it's, it's, it's very complicated because it, it also intersects with race and gender and all the other sort of protected classes. And there are legitimate forms of geographic discrimination. Like President Trump, for example, was saying that like, look, you know, if you live in a place where there's no jobs, you might just have to move to get jobs. And that's exactly what a lot of urban Appalachians were forced to do. I know in West Virginia, this is one of the biggest issues where you know, half my students are from West, they all want to stay. I mean, they all want to stay, but they're like, you know, some of them are like, I can't because I'm not able to find employment here. To to the point of home, I know you have several really good quotes on home uh, in your essay, but one of those is Maya Angelou's. And, and I think I just want to read it. She says, home is a place inside ourselves where we belong and maybe the only place we really do. But then she goes on to say, you are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. And that kind of gets to the point of another quote you had by T.S. Eliot of all our exploring will be to arrive where we began and to know the place for the first time. So do you think they're really saying there that to really be free, to really consider a place home, we can agree to disagree but we have to be inclusive. Maybe we need to leave to appreciate where we came from. What do you think they were getting at by those quotes and why did you use them in your essay? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair characterization. Um, I, I think that the concept of home just, you know, it's universal, it crosses cultures. I think I had mentioned something interesting about the Greek language, how they you know, they have like the, the nomos, like there was like the hero's journey to go back home, like the Odyssey. And then they also consider what looks really attractive and what tastes good is about home. We like to think that we're not shaped by where we are from, where we grew up. But I think the reality is, is that we are. I mean, even if we try to avoid, even if we try to run away from where we came from. I mean, for a lot of people, home is a negative thing, right? They, they might have experienced a lot of, a lot of um, misery or heartache or abuse, but it's still formative. One of the things that I remember, you know, General Stanley McChrystal was doing this tour around the country. And um, our senator, you know, Joe Manchin, who you might have heard of recently, <laughs> a little bit, doing this sort of like tour where he was talking about trying to get people to sort of be less divided. And, and one of the points that McChrystal made is that when he worked in the Middle East, and of course, was fighting all these um, you know, people, he realized that, like, you know, if I put myself in their shoes, and I had the same formative experiences that they did, I might believe what they believe. And so I think the thing about home is that like, it unavoidably shapes us, but then we should have, well, above all, like, like you said, I think in some respect, maybe a simple way of thinking about human dignity or being free from discrimination, just saying that like, I wanna be home. I wanna be accepted for who I am um, and comfortable where I am, but then also, People have to be free to change that, right? I mean, someone might have come from, you know, a small town, Kentucky, and, and be in New York City and totally trying to put on a totally different identity than they want to, or someone might embrace, you know, who they are. But I think that it's undeniable that, like, where you're born and where you're raised influences you on a fundamental human level. You, you know, like like you mentioned, the, the hillbilly or the, we're, we're this white monolithic culture and that's all we are which is not the case i mean like one that i get all the time you know even very well-educated sophisticated people from like urban areas who i talk to 
they just assume, and I'll talk about my state, West Virginia, that like, you know, everyone's a coal miner. I'm like, no, they're very, I'm like, the, what is it? I think service, medical and education are the three largest industries in Appalachia, but they're like dumbfounded. I'm like, no, really, there really aren't that many coal miners. I'm not now it's got a real cultural context. Like um, take the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? You know, the AFC, you know, the NFL football team. I mean, there haven't been steel workers in Pittsburgh since the 1980s. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it still has a really important cultural role, which is also why, you know, that's the name of their team. And they, you know, they have the U.S. Steel symbol on their helmet. They don't even, U.S. Steel doesn't even exist anymore. So <laughs> cultural icons to these things, but it, it many otherwise well-educated people who, again, may not make the same assumptions about race, let's say, would just be like, well, you know, isn't everyone in West Virginia a coal miner? <laughs> right. You know, obviously you talk about locational prejudice and kind of, you, you do mention locational prejudice, freedom of how it's law without a remedy. Can you talk a little bit about the remedies that you do suggest in your essay? Well, I mean, and so, you know, one of the nice things about being a professor and academic is that you can go into sort of la-la land and, and sort of... <laughs> so I thought, okay, here, this is a problem that I think is well-documented and people are aware of. And I do think that people would agree that discriminating against someone on the basis of location or where they're from or where they live or where they work, you know, or how they self-identify um, geographically is wrong. Now, um, I want to say again that, like, you know, I'm not saying this is the, the same level as sort of like race or gender. It's not an either or. It's, um, I mean, it's 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 an and, right? Clearly, it's wrong for people. I mean, like, you know, if I, if I were interviewing you two for jobs and you're you're both eminently qualified, but I'm just going to say, well, you know, I don't like their, I don't like how they talk, and I don't like that they're from this part in Kentucky, you know, and I'm so I'm not going to give them the job. Well, that's wrong, right? That's just plain out wrong. So. Um, there are lots of legal wrongs that don't have remedies. And sort of one of the things that I thought of doing is, is you know, I took a concept from uh, uh, geography and you know, law professors, we like to take stuff that, you know, we don't know about and just sort of borrow it from other <laughs> But this idea of distance and just saying, you know, one of the things about geography is that there's a lot of actual empirical data, right? I mean, you, like almost 40% of what we do is habit and routine, right? So the reason why location matters so much, especially where you call home is because, I mean, that's what you do, you know, most of the time where your home is, is also where you work. Those are the people you interact with. Those are sort of the opportunities that you or your families have, you know, educational opportunities, job opportunities, cultural opportunities. And so there's this concept of distance which could be uh, either actual like empirical, you know, it could be like, you know, how far is it for you to go from like where you live to where you work, or it could be sort of a more metaphorical thing. But the idea is that because there's so much data and information about geographical locational information that you could actually sort of look at it in a more quantifiable way and a more empirical way to try to see, you know, is there really some sort of discrimination going on here? Oftentimes how that's done in the law and civil rights cases is what's called pretextual discrimination, right? So like oftentimes geography will be used as a pretext to discriminate for other ways. Like, um, I mean, one way you can think about it, which is in the news right now is gerrymandering, right? So the whole idea right. that, you know, you look where people live and it's like, well, I can't actually discriminate on the basis of race, but if I 
if I draw these ridiculous lines to these, um, you know, voting voting districts, and I happen to do it all based on sort of like where people of particular races live, then that's a way that I can try to discriminate on the basis of race by using geography. So I kind of flip that and just say, well, since that's something that we've often used to examine pretextual discrimination, you could also use that just to be like, you know, is there sort of a locational prejudice going on here? Do I think we have the political will to, to implement that sort of thing? I don't know. I mean, you know, earlier I did this sort of experiment with my friend who was uh, um, sort of a data person. And we figured out that if, you know, all the Appalachian counties that are identified by the um, Appalachian Regional uh, Commission were together, it would be something like the third largest state in the the country with, you know, a huge number of, of senators and representatives. And, and so I, I guess that if, if, if Appalachians were unify more politically, then, then maybe that might be a po- possibility. And, and of course, locational prejudice is not limited to Appalachians, right? I mean, but- Right, um, right. exactly. I do think though, that historically, the Appalachian context is one of the most like well-developed, right? And, and, it, and it helps that there's actually been official statements by the federal government, by state governments, basically admitting that in the past they did discriminate against Appalachia. I mean, do I think that it's going to happen anytime soon? No. I mean, would I like it to? I mean, I, I do think that uh, currently when, when, when someone like you two, you know, experience locational prejudice or someone just says, well, you know, ah, isn't that funny? I can, I can make fun of you on the base. You know, I can call you a hillbilly and, and, you know, that, that's okay. There was even a, a, a news story, again, about Cincinnati, where uh, there were people interviewed who said that, you know, they grew up in these sort of upper middle class households where they were never allowed to make comments about race or gender. But like hillbilly jokes were totally fine. You know, making fun of people who were hillbillies or, you know, from like um, Appalachian counties was totally acceptable. So, you know, I don't think that's acceptable. And, and, I, and I have no doubt that, you know, people are discriminated against on the basis of being Appalachian or self-identifying as Appalachian or, or sounding Appalachian. And, and there's no legal remedy, right? So, so I mean, I wish there would be one, but realistically, you know, I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. So I guess that answers my next question. Based on your research and what you've seen, you haven't seen this progress or the conversation or further the conversation in any way, or you haven't seen it being attempted in anywhere else in the Country. No, so like um, you know, we Cincinnati, for example, has this human rights ordinance, which, as far as I know, it's the only one in the country. It's never been enforced. I, I think what actually happened, uh, you know, based on the history, and I, you know, I had a I had a co-author who interviewed actually one of the people behind it. It was an example where basically uh, there was the large organized Appalachian population in the Cincinnati area, like we talked about, and. The real issue was about um, sexual orientation, because at the time, federal law did not recognize sexual orientation as a protected class. Of course, today, federal law does recognize sexual orientation as a protected class. That ordinance was really sort of considered more novel because it it, it included sexual orientation. And then the Appalachian uh, advocates just sort of said, can we add Appalachian status too? And basically, the city council was like, well, I mean, why not? Sure. You know, (laughs) And they basically added it on. I mean, one of the uh, one of the people who voted on it was interviewed later, and, and he was sort of like, "Well, you know, I, I didn't really see any evidence that people were being discriminated against based on their, you know, Appalachian status." But I thought, what harm could it do? Yeah. Part of that too is, I think, like you all have talked about, 
the whole concept of being Appalachian is it's so multifaceted. It doesn't have the same identity like a state. And don't think of it that way. I mean, I mean, here's a question for you all, because I mean, I mean, you all are a lot more familiar with this, but like, why do you think that is that? Well, I guess, do you think Americans who are from Appalachia, who self-identify as Appalachians, unify beyond their sort of immediate, like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from Kentucky, I'm from Appalachian, Kentucky, or I'm from Appalachian, West Virginia, or do they just sort of stick to their local sort of Appalachian identity? Uh, I think you can section off Appalachia into central Appalachia, into southern Appalachia, into northern Appalachia. I've done some work in, in northern Appalachia and have told them about the power grant, and they didn't even know that they were Appalachian. You know, they didn't even understand that they were in the defined Appalachian Regional Commission definition of Appalachia. So, yeah, I, I think inside Appalachia, it's much more of a regional thing uh, in regards to, you know, filling part of one another. I, I think that should change. I think we should be a unified Appalachia, e- even from a political perspective, or we, we could just have so much more, I don't know if power is the right word, but so much more uh, pull when it, when it comes to things like that, if we were a defined region or if we were a unified region, you know, 25 million people is a lot of people. And so uh, to your question, I think it's a regional thing within Appalachia. I wish it wasn't, but I think it is. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, it is also interesting because, of course, as you all know, the term, I mean, I mean, it's another example where sort of like it was a term imposed upon people and it's sort of been turned around as being like kind of maybe a term that's being embraced now by people from there. But my view, all Appalachians share two things. They share a legacy of exploitation, you know, often for natural resource extraction, where the wealth didn't stay in the local communities and went outside of the local communities. Um, But also just how uh, the stigma, right? I mean, the stereotypes and the stigma, the hillbilly stigma, you know, that transcends I don't know. I don't know if if, if people will, will really be like, well, you know, you're a New York hillbilly versus a West Virginia hillbilly, or a Kentucky. <laughs> right? It is really interesting how Appalachians really haven't become like a social movement, or or really didn't organize the way that's let's say other other identity groups have done so. And, and, and there is sort of an irony, like the law. You know, there's there's federal case law that has recognized like subnational groups that don't even exist anymore. Or, or like, let's say if you're like a Kurd, or you come from another country that no longer exists, you can get some protection under, under U.S. civil rights laws. But there's just this sort of amorphous aspect about being Appalachian, even though, I mean, we have a really clear definition in law, right? I mean, it's That's like, very interesting. But, but even that de- legal definition, like, I don't, I don't even know, you know, I mentioned those counties outside of Atlanta, but like, I mean... It doesn't surprise me, for example, that there are people in northern Appalachia who don't even realize they're Appalachian because they, they think they assume, oh, those are Southerners, right? Like, you know. Right. You get above the Mason Dixon and. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no longer in Appalachia. Yeah. Um, or, I, mean, I mean, maybe it's the mountains too, right? I mean, of course, it's the Appalachian Mountains, but it's also just being mountain people. I mean, part of me thinks that, like, stuff that you guys are doing, there's there seems to me a little bit more of a renaissance where, like, there is more of this embracing of Appalachian. You have the voices from people who are actually Appalachian showing the, the diversity, the cultural, the racial, you know, and, and just 
instead of having these sort of monolithic narratives, which, you know, the entire history, of course, right up to like, may, I would even say maybe even like the 90s was just like the national media or like people from outside Appalachia would define what Appalachia is. Now Appalachians are defining it themselves. But, you know, I would say maybe the next logical place would be once you're sort of exerting your individuality and recognizing your true identity is that like in our country, it's still a democracy, right? Political activism is the next thing. Um, it does make sense for Appalachians to unite, especially because um, outside of Alabama and West Virginia, Appalachians in every other state are a minority. You know, I, as, you, as you guys probably saw, like I'm pretty unapologetic. I mean, you know, I'm an outsider. I'm a, I would say I'm a transplant. But when I look at the history, my 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 feeling is that, like, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, Appalachians should care about themselves. In other words, that like long history of just being totally like taken advantage of, exploited. If there was a sort of Appalachian political unity where these various counties actually sort of coordinated and collaborated, that ultimately should be about what's going to be best for Appalachia. And that should be the defining characteristic of any policy, any law, or any political candidate. Because too often we see, and I, I think you can even see without getting political about it, even then recent, you know, talk is cheap, right? I mean, people like to say, oh yeah, we're gonna help so and so and so and so, but where, where are the actual results? You know, where are the jobs? Where's the infrastructure? Where's the money? Where's the investments? Right. And um, that unity can help in that in that regard. Yeah. And, and we've talked to without it, without it, we're all these little independent. independent right. Exactly. Uh, and, and maybe maybe that's the next sort of organic uh, step now that we have, you know, wonderful voices like yourselves who are actually like real Appalachians being heard and taking advantage of, you know, modern technology also. I mean, I think a lot of this was just in the past. Individual Appalachian voices just didn't really have the access to the general public that, that we have now. In my opinion, I mean, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is always about economic development, right, jobs. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I'll tell you that I say about West Virginia, because, you know, I, I mean, I come from Washington, D.C. area, and there's, there's a long history of sort of uh, locational prejudice from people in D.C. I mean, well-educated, really thoughtful people shock me at how prejudiced they are and, and just like believing West Virginia stereotypes. And one of the things I tell them was, I, I, this is my own argument. I say, you know, to me, West Virginia is like the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic. It's like, it's like the most desirable neighborhood. And you always want to buy that, be in the house that's the least developed and the most desirable block. Like, so it's like, to me, West Virginia is like the least developed house in the best neighborhood. And that, you know, I, I still see a, a lot of um, potential and, uh, you know, there's more and more of that happening. And of course, on a micro level, I think that's been happening, but I, I don't know. I mean, the economic development piece is a really tough one, right? Because so many Appalachians leave because they have no choice, or at least they think they have no choice, right? Maybe they, the, the perception is that they have no choice. And that's also why I think this locational prejudice piece is more relevant, because I, I really do think that most of the prejudice against Appalachians in particular is, you know, that's taking place outside of Appalachia, right? And oftentimes it's because people are forced to go outside of Appalachia for jobs. Yeah. And, and to the economic development piece, I mean, we've had the war on poverty since the sixties and you know, how much has changed since then. W one thing I wanted to ask you, the thing that we ask all our guests, and I think it's uh, perfect for, for this episode, you know, where do you call home? 
and how do you identify with it? What makes it unique? I know you you talked about not being from West Virginia, but where do you call home? I would say I'm a resident of Appalachian, right? I'm a transplant and I consider Appalachia my home now. You know, I think Morgantown, West Virginia is my home. And um, for me, it's a great sweet spot. You know, it's a college town. It's about the right level of sophistication. You know, I like friends in low places, I guess you could say. <laughs> and I have to say that, you know, when I came here, I mean, I came here for the job. Right to be a professor, and 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 and, my, and before we record, I told I actually told you all about the story about my wife. Right, my wife came here basically, uh, having only lived in sort of these large urban areas, and for this first six months that we lived here, every day she'd wake up and say, "I can't believe I'm in West Virginia." The reality is, is both her and I had grown up with all these sort of preconceived stereotypes that we had been either explicitly or implicitly conditioned to believe. And, you know, now having lived here for 13 years, I can definitely say that, you know, that's not been the case. So, so I'm a Korean American myself and, you know, I'm often asked, so like, you know, do you experience like racial discrimination in Appalachia and West Virginia? And just speaking just for myself now, I can say I have never, ever experienced any, I mean, if anything, I could say that like, I have had some of the most wonderful personal experiences um, with people in West Virginia, um, not saying anything against other states, but like, um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, West Virginia and Appalachia is my home and that's where I consider my home. But if you would ask me that 13 years ago, I think my answer would have been, well, you know, that's where the job is and we'll see how it goes. Right. But um, yeah, it's very interesting. And, and, you know, the one thing I tell people about Appalachia and West Virginia in particular is that like, Forget about the stereotypes. Forget about what other people say. Decide for yourself. And I really think ultimately, if people just visit Appalachia or talk to people from Appalachia or just, I think they will see that, you know, it's a wonderful, amazing part of America. And um, with a lot of real, I mean, you said like, you know, a lot of coolness to it too. And um, West Virginia, there's a, there's a, so there's actually a song, right? You know, my home, my home in the hills. So I guess West Virginia is my home in the hills. Great answer. Great answer. So are you a football fan? Oh, yeah. I don't know if we want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, um, I grew up in the D.C. area and, you know, I'm from Maryland. And, I mean, no offense to the University of Maryland Terrapins, but they weren't really like a really big powerhouse, maybe a little bit basketball. And, you know, I grew up as a, a Redskin fan, now the Washington football team, and we could have a whole separate conversation. <laughs> yeah. That one storied franchise when a certain owner took over. But like, I didn't really get college football until I moved. Until you started burning couches? Yeah, well, well, you know, the thing about, I, I, I understand Appalachian fatalism now, that's for sure, right? <laughs> I, I feel like as a, as a WVU football fan, I'm like, okay, now I understand Appalachian fatalism where it's like, you know, we, we you know, we're never going to be good. We can <laughs> get good things. <laughs> right now our season is not uh, going that great, but. Um, and Will, we greatly appreciate you being on, on the episode and furthering the conversation and to your point that you made of unifying Appalachia and the importance of that. We, we, we are grateful for the work that you do, for the professor that you are, and for being on our, on our show. Thanks again. Thanks for your work. Well, thank you. And thank you, gentlemen. You know, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of your podcast now, and I'm you know, looking forward to learning more about Appalachia uh, you know, through YouTube being my, uh, my guides. So thank you so much for inviting me. It's kind of scary, but perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Will, 
we had another wheel tonight, and he was on his game, and I know that he is uh, doing great work at West Virginia Law School, but I really, really enjoyed talking to Dr. Will. We had one regular Will and one Dr. Will on the show. Dr. William Reed did an excellent job, and I really appreciated his commentary. Yeah, I appreciated it too. It, it was it was excellent, and he acted like he wasn't an expert. Um, I know expert in civil rights, but uh, I feel like his he has an expert opinion in regards to geographic discrimination. Let's um, let's be honest, he's an expert in humility too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate him talking about not being from the region, but really integrating himself into the region and how appreciative he was of the region being as he described a resident Appalachian. I know. And I love he He told us about it a couple of times, but I loved when he talked about how he accepted that job at WVU kind of uh, on a whim and didn't really tell his wife where they were going. But you know, can, can you imagine those first couple of years for her? I mean, I know, I know Appalachia wins people over, but Man, I know at my house, uh, it would have been a tough year or so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when when I moved out of Appalachia, it was a culture shock. I imagine when they moved into Appalachia, also (laughs) a major culture shock. Yeah, I'm sure she, well, as he said, she loves it now and uh, has really warmed up to the place and what a great place to live. But I really appreciate the work he's he's doing and am interested to hear you know, we, we kind of asked him that question, what's next? And he never really came off and told us exactly what's next. But I think the wheels are turning. I do, too. He, he seemed very curious about what more he could do um, in regards to what's next and, and, and just how much of an impact he actually can make. Yeah, there's no doubt that there is a stigma or a discrimination-based uh, feeling in some areas of, of our world or our country with people from Appalachia, uh, us being two of those people, as, as we learned from uh, Dr. E's research uh, and many conversations that he's had over time, many conversations that you and I have had over time, that discrimination definitely exists in our world. And uh, hopefully we can help in some small way, put an end to some of that. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, discrimination does happen Uh, from a legal standpoint, as Will was talking about. It's not always easy to prove, but uh, being judged, you can always tell when you're being judged, being discriminated against. You know, it's a lot easier to see discrimination in regards to race, in regards to sexual orientation, in regards to gender. It's a lot harder to understand when it's geographic discrimination. But I feel like it does exist. I mean, obviously, we're judged. I don't know. Just growing up, I've always felt like even in, take, for instance, college admissions, I feel like a lot of the times the Appalachian region is definitely discriminated against when it comes to college admissions. A lot of times, college admission advisors won't even come to the region. We already have these misconceptions, already have these ideas to think about the region. So they don't even bother. They don't even come. So if that's not discrimination, I don't know what is. I totally agree. I, I do have to ask, though, a second ago when you said Will was talking about, did you really feel odd like you were talking in third person? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, did. I did. I felt like I was Shaq. <laughs> <laughs>
Shaq knows. Shaq knows all. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my that's my humor of the night. Yeah, I felt like this episode was. I felt like it hit a lot of nerves. I don't know if when people listen to this, if it will hit touch touch on some nerves. I'm, I imagine it will. I felt like a lot of some some of what we were, were speaking to didn't come off as heavy just because of the way that we were speaking. But a lot of this is really heavy. A lot of this this could be, I guess, explored further. I know when we first reached out to him, it, it was kind of the idea of furthering the conversation. You know, his is just an essay. It's nothing legal. It's not any legalese. It's just an essay. And I think we could definitely further the conversation in this regard. I'm sure there is others out there as well that have similar stories to ours that we alluded to in the beginning of the episode. But, you know, if there are some great examples of discrimination, I'd be happy to hear them. I'd be happy for our listeners to maybe share those with us through social media or send us an email. Let us know some of the things that you've experienced just because of where you grew up or where you're from or how you talk. Um you know, that it, it's, there's definitely, it definitely exists. Let's not hide from it. Definitely something that us in Appalachia need to overcome and certainly can overcome. And, and many, 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 many people have overcome. So, yeah. And we're, we're definitely not saying one discrimination is worse than the other. That's not the point. The point is that all discrimination is wrong and it, it, it should, you know, it shouldn't exist. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good idea. If anybody wants to email us, Appalachian Meets World at gmail.com. Uh, let us know if you'd like to read it. If you'd like for us to read it on air, we don't have to name names if you don't if you don't like. But yeah, give us a shout. Send us a message and let us know. Yeah. So um, I know we've told several personal stories uh, throughout this episode, so I don't know if there's really a of place segment that we can go to. But is there anything that kind of stuck out in your mind tonight as we talked to Dr. Ree about his essay and some of his experiences and some of his research that uh, kind of took you back to your heyday? Yeah, I, I, I'll stay away from the personal stories. Like you said, we, we, we said quite a few on this episode. <laughs> there was one thing that I wanted to mention about his essay. And if you you'd like to read it, you know, you can go to the WVU uh, Law Journal and, and look it up. But a, a lot of it also talks about home and it kind of defines home. And I know we touched on that in the episode and what home is and and ha- how each individual person defines home. But there is a quote in there that we didn't read in the episode. We did read a couple quotes, but one is from the Appalachian author, Bell Hooks. It kind of uh, stood out to me when I was reading the essay, but it kind of derives on the idea that home's not only a space, but it's kind of a structure in time. It's kind of where you are at the moment. Uh, and sometimes home is not filled with good feelings. Some, sometimes home is hard to remember for some. A lot of times when you leave home, you're always yearning to get back uh, to where you want to call home. But Bell, I just want to read Bell Hook's quote from the essay. <clears throat> it goes, each year of my life as I Went home to visit. It was a rite of passage to reassure myself that I still belonged, that I had not become so changed that I could not come home again. My visits home almost always left me torn. I wanted to stay, but I needed to leave to be endlessly running away from home. And it kind of 
I guess, struck a nerve with me because, you know, being away from home, sometimes when you go back, it's kind of like getting above your raisins or, or you come back and you still feel like it's home. But in a sense, you almost feel like you don't belong because you've been away for so long. You don't know how people react to you. You don't know what they're thinking in regards to you. Um, are you still the same person? That quote kind of hit home with me. I don't know what how you felt when I just read it, but I, I kind of really enjoyed reading it and understand where Bell Hooks was coming from. Kind of felt like uh, might have been your quote. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I kind of felt like to be honest, but yeah, I, I get it. I know you probably get it more than me, but I've always kind of not ventured too far away from home, but I certainly understand. I just wanted to point out that it talks about home quite a bit. And that's what kind of what I appreciated uh, most about the essay. It was, it was how he handled the definition of home and, and how a lot of people feel. Very good, man. I think uh, it was another good episode. I think it's a wrap it up. And I'm looking forward to hearing that music coming up here in a second. With- I, I look forward to reaching out to, to Will uh, Re <laughs> uh, again and just following up with him. Maybe we can have him on the episode again to see what he's doing, to see how he is further in the conversation. I, I, I'll, just, I'll just say to end it here tonight. Uh, until next time. Peace. getting lighter, the air's getting thin, now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long, sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs, now I'm back up where I belong, in the mountains again.